For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Alright, think of a jeans brand. I bet it's Levi's. Is that the first one that comes to mind? There are, of course, loads of them. I mean, hundreds, maybe even thousands of denim companies today. Denim has been thoroughly disrupted. The original, though, was Levi's. Blue jeans were invented by Jacob Davis and Levi Strauss in the 1870s. They were worn by gold miners and cowboys. Then by James Dean and Marlon Brando and American teenagers. I mean, teenagers in general. And of course, rock stars. If you want to talk about the history of cool, then Levi's was right up there. From Blondie to the Ramones to Jim Morrison, even James Brown, they all wore Levi's. And as High Snobiety points out, lest we forget the impact of Levi's on hip-hop music, 501s were the go-to uniform for Run DMC and the Beastie Boys and are a typical mention in rap songs ranging throughout the past 30 years. Now, women's Levi's were introduced in 1934, which if you think about it is quite radical. A decade earlier, women in any kind of trousers were considered scandalous. And in fact, you could argue that was the case later on too. In certain places, including work places, offices and restaurants, women weren't allowed to wear trousers or were sniffed at for wearing trousers until the 60s. I mean, that is an actual fact. Can you believe it? <laughs> Ridiculous. But how sustainable is Levi's? This week, I get to ask none other than Levi's Vice President of Sustainability, a man who has been with the company for about 20 years. He started out in human rights, and since being at Levi's, he's seen the conversation shift from sweatshops and corporate social responsibility, do you remember when we use that term, CSR, to a focus on materials and life cycle assessments and worker well-being. He is Michael Kabori, and I caught up with him in person last month. It's fantastic to pick the brains of someone who's been at the forefront of sustainability through so much industry change, and someone who's willing to have a very frank conversation about big issues, from water use to cotton crops to wages and climate change. I really enjoyed talking to Michael, and I think you're going to get a lot out of this one. I've actually got a few other denim stories in the can, so this is just the start of an exploration of a massive section of the fashion market. Thank you to everyone who's been emailing about our newsletter. Basically, I'm writing you a letter about all the goings-on in sustainable fashion every week. You can sign up on clairepress.com. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe if you're listening in iTunes, and keep those ratings and reviews coming. It really helps other people find us. Finally, a shout out to all of our citizen producers who supported our crowdfunding campaign for Series 3 and to our patron supporters. You guys, you make it all worthwhile. I am so grateful. But now, let's hear from Michael. 
Michael, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. I'm so glad that we have found this time. I know you're a very busy man. We're at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. You're speaking. Yes. Thank you, Claire. So happy to be here. I want to start with a history lesson. So Levi's began in the gold rush in San Francisco. I love this idea of durability. Tell us the story about the rivets. So Levi Strauss was an actual person back in the 1850s. He went to California to make his fortune. He had a dry goods store. And one of the things he sold were denim trousers. And back then, his customers were the miners, the people who were panning for gold in the mountains. And uh, he realized that his customers, and he paid attention to his customers, like all good merchants, they wanted a product that was more durable. The product he had would rip, but because they were carrying heavy tools, he teamed up with one of his suppliers, a tailor named Jacob Davis, who had invented this process to put rivets in the corners of the pockets so they wouldn't rip. And were they the first to do it? They were the first, hence was born what we know today and what has been called the the iconic fashion item of the 20th century, which is the five-pocket riveted denim jean, Levi's. Can I just interrupt you and say that I really like your jacket? <laughs> oh, thank you. It's, could you describe it? I always wish that people could see it. We'll have to take a picture of you. But um, it is covered in excellent badges and it's personalised. Yes, yeah, so this is our latest uh, initiative. It's a traditional uh, standard denim trucker jacket, so the denim jacket that we all know and love. And what we've done now is we've opened up in many of our retail outlets something we call the tailor shop where there is literally a tailor at a sewing machine. And so you can bring in a product like this trucker jacket and get patches that you've chosen sewn onto the garment. So I have a peace sign in the stars and stripes. You got a, I have you a little Snoopy emblem. Uh, there's a, a Shanghai patch here. You've also got so, your name on it, embroidered. Yes, so they'll do the embroidery, personalize it. They'll put on the patches that you want. Um, so that's one feature of personalizing or customizing the garment so it becomes something that you want to keep for the rest of your life. I'm into that. More durability. Durability idea. Um, You can also bring in your garment and if you've put on a little weight or lost a little weight, they will alter it for you so it continues to fit. For free? There's a slight charge, but this is the beauty of it. It's also a, it's more sustainable, but it's also a business opportunity. This is a new business model that uh, that we're looking at as well. Um, If it's ripped, We'll repair it. We'll patch it. Um, So there's all kinds of things. And what we're seeing from our consumers now is they're more interested in repairing old clothes. Mm. This idea of mending, of keeping something that is durable, that is high quality, and keeping it for a longer period of time is starting to take hold. I love it. It's interesting to hear you push that as well, because Levi's is a very big and commercial name. So it's not just... Mm. Obviously, we know some of the indies have been doing this stuff, and you do repair shop, for example. But to have that on mass, how many of these are they store within stores? Do you have? Well, so we have the Levi's standalone retail shops in countries all around the world. And this tailor shop is a feature that we're adding to our retail shops. And in many cases, it now becomes, with our new store design, it really becomes the centerpiece of the retail store. One of the things that we see with the rise of internet shopping is people aren't stopping going to retail, going to bricks and mortar Yeah, but they're looking for experience. They're looking for experience. And wow, what better experience to walk into a clothing store and see a tailor at work personalizing your garments for you. All right, I love it. 
I want one. All right, so when, though, did denim get unsustainable? And we're back to our history lesson. The first um, jeans, the first 501s that I was telling you about that Levi and Jacob Davis invented literally could last 100 years. So we have products in our archives that we found in old abandoned mines, and it's perfectly good Levi's that you could wear 100 years later. So the product is designed to be extremely durable. I think what we've seen over the years is people of all you know, walks of life, from cowboys, from miners, all the way through to the movie stars who wanted that Western look, to the rebels like James Dean and Marlon Brando in the 50s, to the hippies, the counterculture people in the 60s, and, and later on, the people who brought down the Berlin Wall. Um, I think Levi's has always been a symbol of freedom, mm. of individual self-expression, and that's something that, uh, that has been there throughout our history. But when did denim yeah. become unsustainable? Because I guess I'm leading you towards the washing question and the fact that those durable jeans designed to last for 100 years are no longer really the way we do it. Come on. So yes. what? when did the industry evolve into something that had got a... Uh, more serious implications for the environment, for example. I um, mean, when we started making it look worn, when it wasn't yeah, worn. Probably uh, 20 to 30 years ago, this worn look started coming in style. It began with the old idea of stone washing jeans, where literally stones, pumice stones, were used in the washing machines to get that faded look. And it's something that the, the customer was really interested in. They wanted to see the jeans look a little older. Um, so that was about 20 or 30 years ago, I think. And then designers kind of got into into this and began designing different looks and making the looks, you know, from faded stonewash to dark to all different kinds of finishes. And that became very popular. It really started becoming a fashion item in that way. And uh, it was about um, that time where we, you know, we started looking at our production and we said, hmm, if these kinds of things are happening in the production, then we need to start keeping track of how much water is being used and what is the quality of the water that's coming out of the laundries that we're working in. So in 2007, was it 2007? We did our first environmental life cycle assessment of a pair of Levi's 501s. But I would say even before that, and this was really back in the 90s when we established our first code of conduct, to govern the labor standards. But in uh, a few years after that, in um, 1994, we established water quality standards for all of the laundries that were washing our product because we realized at that time that we were starting to work with laundries outside of the U.S. that didn't really have those government standards of water quality. And so we said, well, shouldn't they? And so in some countries they didn't. So we set up a global standard for water quality way back in 1994. So let's just move forward to then in 2007 when you commissioned the life cycle assessment of a pair of Levi's 501s. Mm-hmm. Yes. What did you expect to find and what did you find? We were very focused on our direct contract facilities, the manufacturers, the suppliers that were making the product for us. And uh, that's where we thought the biggest impacts were. And that's where we had been focusing, whether it was their water quality or their labor standards. After we did that life cycle assessment, The most interesting thing that we found was our biggest impact, if you think about water use or carbon emissions or chemical use, was not with our first-tier manufacturers. Let me just stop you there and ask you to very briefly summarize what a life cycle assessment is. A life cycle assessment is a, a scientific assessment 
to determine what is the environmental impact of a product all the way from its beginning, from literally the raw materials, in our case, growing the cotton, what's the water use? What's the carbon impact? What are the chemicals used? All of the environmental impacts at every stage of the product, from growing it all the way through manufacture, consumer use, and final disposal. Thank you. So you found that the greatest impacts were? The greatest impacts were not in the manufacturing that we thought, but in both ends. So at the beginning, in growing the cotton, uses two-thirds of all the water and chemicals in the product life cycle, and in consumer use, which uses about 60% of all of the energy, washing and drying the product during the time, basically the two years that you own it. Which is why Chip Burke, which I find so funny, in 2014 he said that he hadn't washed his jeans for a year. Well, he never washes his jeans, is what he actually said. Did he? Yes. Is he still not washed them? Oh, yes. my goodness. And so, I mean, he doesn't wash them in the washing machine. He just spot cleans them with a little vinegar to get the, to get the spots out. Are you washing your jeans? This pair I have not washed yet. Oh, my God. Um, I, I, this... There's a bit of me that's... I mean, look, I'm all down for reducing <laughs> water footprints, but I would like to see some jeans washed, please. <laughs> I mean, don't they smell? Come on. I'd, sorry. But. These, these are actually um, perfectly fine. Um, I do turn them inside out periodically and just hang them out in the yeah. sun. And the sun is a great natural disinfectant. All right, then. I don't really wear yes. a lot of denim. I'm the wrong person to be doing this interview. <laughs> okay, and so... real denim aficionados, by the way, do not want to wash the denim. Or the rock when ones. you wash it and when you put it in the dryer, it breaks down the fibers. Oh. So just from a care of your product point of view, it's better to wash less and not put it in the dryer to line dry. Also, if you are a rock star, it's better to get in a hot bath and shrink them to fit. Well, that's what I do with my 501s as well. All right, so you found that the biggest impact was in cotton. Let's talk about the Better Cotton Initiative. So back in 2007, we did this life cycle assessment. We realized a pair of Levi's in its entire life cycle uses a thousand gallons of water, or for those on the metric system, 2,700 liters. 3,700 liters of water. Is it 37? Because there's an 3781, Instagram tile. Okay. Right? Liters of water. So that's a lot of water in the entire life cycle. Two thirds is in cotton. And so we, we really did a deep dive into cotton. We said, okay, it uses a lot of water. It uses chemicals, right? Many of the farmers who uh, grow cotton are smallholder farmers in countries like India and Pakistan. And so we said, wow, how do we address this? It's a big impact. We want to address it. And so we looked around at all the different sustainable cotton initiatives and we landed on one which was very small at the time called the Better Cotton Initiative. That it's really interesting. We love it because it addresses all those issues. So it helps far, it teaches farmers to use less water by different irrigation techniques. It teaches farmers to use less chemicals through techniques which are called, it's called integrated pest management, but it basically means planting flowers that attract the beneficial insects that can kill the boll weevil and the other pests. It, um, but a lot of this cotton's still GM yes. cotton, right? It may be GM cotton, but, I mean, almost all the cotton around in the world is, is Well, all GM, of it in India is GM all, cotton, right? right? But what, what the Better Cotton Initiative does is reduces the water used, reduces the chemicals used, teaches farmers how to use compost instead of chemical fertilizer. Because your input costs are going down and yields are going up, the farmers are able to make more money. So it also teaches the farmers how to make sure that if they are working in the fields, how to pick better and use protective equipment when they do have to apply some pesticide. 
It's a very holistic program that not only responds to the environmental issues, it helps the farmers, who are very poor farmers, get more profits. How does it reduce water use then? So it teaches the farmers to use compost, ground cover. It teaches them to literally dig irrigation ditches instead of flooding the fields. So these are very basic agricultural techniques that some of the small farmers in places like India and Pakistan don't know about. And so it really can improve their farming practices and make them literally more sustainable. Just quickly on that, I don't want to get too deep into cotton, but why not use organic cotton? I mean, I know it's less than 1% of global cotton production, so it's not easy just to switch, but why not move towards more organic? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is organic is terrific. Organic means that over three years, no chemicals are used to grow that cotton. But organic is truly focused on chemicals. And one of the things that we like about better cotton is it not only reduces chemical use, but it also focuses on water use. It minimizes water use, which organic doesn't necessarily do. And it also focuses on labor standards and improving the farmer incomes. So in my mind, the Better Cotton Initiative is actually a more holistic program. Organic we know and we love, but it is also an absolute standard. Zero chemicals, zero pesticides. When we talk to farmers, and farmers are part of the Better Cotton Initiative, the farmers said, look, sometimes we don't, we don't like to use the chemicals, but sometimes we have to, because if we don't, we will lose the crop. Okay, it's a complicated issue. I think I should make a whole show on cotton, and I, the reason why I'm not going to go deep on this is because you could you could do a whole show on it. I went out with Cotton Australia just to visit mm-hmm. some farmers recently and came back more confused than when I went. Well, <laughs> but I, will, I will say that in terms of this, right, organic is terrific, right? We like it. It is sometimes a more difficult standard to reach because of the zero chemical use. But again, we like BCI because it is holistic. It also responds to water as well as farming conditions and labor conditions. The other thing about BCI is it is able to scale. You mentioned, right, organic is still less than 1% of all the cotton grown in the world. Better cotton is now nearly 20%. So we've brought better environmental practices, but also better incomes to literally 2 million farmers all around the world. So we're able to expand this sustainability program. It's almost like the first step for farmers who could potentially graduate to organic, and that would be terrific. While we're on this subject, let's briefly touch on the chemicals piece. So I forgot what year it is when Detox came out and Levi's was implicated in the Greenpeace reporting. I'm actually about to go and do a show with Kristen Broder. Yes. That'll be fun. You have then turned around the chemical story. Tell us about that. We were a pioneer in what is now called a restricted substances list, which really means those are the chemicals that we will not use on the product, right? Because they're regulated, they're found to be harmful. What we've begun to move to is two things. One is we have pledged along with 20 other companies, big brands that we all know, like uh, Adidas or Nike or H&M, to eliminate all harmful hazardous chemicals by 2020 from our entire supply chain, number one. Number two, we have pioneered a process called our screened chemistry framework. So any chemistry that we still use, we're screening it to determine, is it a safer chemistry that we want to use? Is it one that we want to get out of, or is it one we want to perhaps phase out and find alternatives? So we're using this screening process now so we can move to only using safer chemistries. So it's something that we are trying to get the whole industry to move to. It's not always easy. Sometimes the chemical industry doesn't want us to go there. (laughs) But this is a place that we need to go to in terms of workers, farmers, as well as our consumers. Okay. Um, 
Let's talk about Levi's as a company. Is it still privately held? It was up until about six weeks ago when we went public for the second time in our history. Right. So how big is it? In terms of our revenues, in terms of customers. Give us a picture. Yeah. Um, so uh, Levi's is one of the largest brand apparel companies in the world, largest maker of denim. We had revenues last year of about um, almost $6 billion U.S. We're sold in over 110 countries all around the world. And where do you make it? Actually, let me ask about 501s. How many pairs of 501s would you sell in a year? Can you tell us that? I can't give you the exact figure, but it uh, is in the millions. Right. So where do you make your product now? Um, it's a long time since most things have been made in the USA. We do make some of the products in the U.S., but um, the product is made really everywhere around the world in 45 different countries around the world. And uh, it's made everywhere from Asia to Turkey, Mexico. So we try to locate the manufacturing close to the market. Our markets have grown in Europe and Asia, as well as the Americas. So what we try to do is locate the production really near the markets. So production in 45 different countries. We're one of the few brands that actually has a full list of our production locations online. And we're very transparent about that. You mentioned earlier that um, you're one of the first companies, if not the first company, to introduce a code of conduct, which you call... Yeah, it's called, it was originally called our Terms of Engagement. Um, that, that was 1991, was 1991, right? We were the first, first multinational company, not just apparel company, but first global company to establish a comprehensive code that covered labor, health and safety, and environmental issues back then. It was truly, I mean, I have to tell you, Claire, it was truly revolutionary at the time because back then, what was that, 30-something years ago, it wasn't a company's responsibility to make sure of the working conditions in a factory or the environmental conditions in the community. Um, it was government's responsibility and people literally ridiculed us at the time for getting into something they thought a company had no business being responsible for. I wanted to bring you back to that time because your background, um, when did you start with Levi's? You've been there 20 years, right? I was, uh, I began with the company in 1995. Right. So after that period, but if you think about the early 90s, I was thinking about No Logo because I just reread it recently. Yes. And yes. I know your background is sort of human rights areas yes. and obviously that's a passion point for you, teach at Berkeley. Yes. Tell me about that time in the 90s. Like, Do you remember that era when No Logo was kind of very pointedly putting the focus on big companies for being irresponsible with their supply chains? Mm -hmm. um, I guess you've got mass movement of production offshore. Yeah. You've got increasingly complex supply chains. And then yeah. you've got all the sweatshop stories that are suddenly hitting mm -hmm. the headlines. Where were you at then and what, how did that affect your thinking? You know, th this was a fascinating time. I joined the company in 1995. I had just gotten out of graduate school. I went to policy school at Berkeley. And I had spent 10 years before that working in international development and human rights. I had uh, worked at a place called the Asia Foundation. So in Vietnam? And, well, I lived in Thailand, worked in Vietnam, and I also lived in Bangladesh. And uh, what I really remember about my experience in Bangladesh was I lived in Bangladesh, I'm dating myself here, in the <laughs> late 1980s, and that was a time when the apparel industry was just beginning to get started in Bangladesh. And I remember we would drive to the office and we would pass all of these women wearing sharis walking to the factory. 
And I really remember it vividly because it was for the first time in that Muslim society, women could earn an income outside of the home and it really changed the status of women in that Muslim society and it really stuck with me and I said, wow, there's a way for business to actually have a positive impact in this society by empowering women. Now that was way back then before I even got involved with Levi's. What is the Asia Foundation? Uh, the Asia Foundation is a nonprofit organization. It's headquartered in San Francisco. It has offices throughout Asia. And its, uh, its mission is to uh, support economic development, human rights, and regional cooperation in, in Asia. So that's what I was doing before Levi's. I got to your question, I got to Levi's in the mid-90s, having this background of development and seeing what the apparel industry could do. And uh, as you described, it was a time when there was a lot of coverage about working conditions in apparel factories all around the world. And I was awakened to this idea that a business, through its policies and practices, could change those conditions. I had been working with governments and NGOs to, to try to do that. And, you know, story before I joined Levi's, because I hadn't worked so much in the private sector, I went to one of my mentors, this uh, guy who used to work at the Ford Foundation, he was kind of the elder statesman there, and I said, I asked him, I said, Bill, am I going to the dark side by joining the yeah. private sector, you know? And he said, Michael, you will have more impact working for a company than you ever could making small grants to NGOs. Wow. And, and that was before was, now, which now is a different landscape. He was absolutely right. And so uh, I really appreciate it. Where's it come from in you? I want to know. So <laughs> I asked you if Levi's was still a family company. What was your family upbringing like? And what did yeah. your parents do? And were you like this kid that wanted to be... I mean, who goes into uh -huh. sort of human rights and NGO world? I'd like to know. <laughs> Uh, so I'm a third-generation Japanese-American, so my grandparents immigrated to California back in the 1900s, uh, around that turn of that century. And uh, my father was an engineer, and my mother was a homemaker. And uh, <laughs> growing up, I had two younger brothers, growing up my dad wanted all of us to be engineers. Of course. And uh, I was more interested in people. I studied Asian uh, Asian history and psychology at Berkeley. Ah, uh, right. I spent a year in Japan, rediscovering my roots. That must and, have been amazing. Uh, yeah, that I fun? got very interested in international development. And when I worked at the Asia Foundation, it was uh, it was really a dream job for me, um, supporting economic development, learned about economic development, learned about human rights. And uh, when I got to Levi's. There wasn't this, what we know today, of any profession or any position of sustainability. Oh, the term hadn't been invented. We called it corporate responsibility back then. But uh, the beauty, or I think the, I think the wonder of my career life has been, it's really followed the evolution of this whole movement of corporate sustainability. And uh, it began with, in our apparel industry, in the fashion industry, with the labor standards, as you yeah. mentioned, back in the 90s. And then my job at Levi's, that's how it started. So Labor standards, and then, and then the environmental piece got added, and then it's blossomed into this, this work that we now call sustainability. Just back on that, I know it was before you were there, but um, so when Levi's closed its factory in San Antonio in 1990, and then, I mean, I think, what is it, a thousand odd people lost their jobs, let some mm -hmm. of them with less than 24 hours notice, lots of them were women. 
this is actually, I don't want to make this sound like terrible, terrible Levi's. This was how the world worked before we had more advanced ways of looking at CSR and mm-hmm. before there were codes of conduct. And we know it's probably still how the world works, but let's talk about how that has changed and what you do about that. And perhaps you could share with us what's changed with regards to how you look after workers in your supply chain. Yeah. One of the things that's changed is that um, we started, when I began with the company, the, the work was all about protecting workers' rights, protecting workers' labor rights, making sure they were working in a place that was safe um, and they were treated with dignity and respect. That was our focus. And that's what the industry's focus was, and that's what we spent 20 years doing. Um, Presumably you still have to do it. Of course, we still have to do it, but after 20 years, we realized, isn't there more that we should be doing? Um, And that's when we hit upon this notion of what had been the standard, what had been the aspiration, protecting workers' rights, was now the foundation, was now the minimum. And what else could we do, and what else should we do? And we said, what about the well-being of the people? What about their health? What about their, their access to... Um, the financial system, and and we said, isn't there more? And our foundation at Levi's had been working on these types of issues beyond the what we call beyond compliance for a number of years, and we said, oh, maybe we should learn from their experience and and ask the workers, what more is it that you're interested in? What more do you need? And so we did that. We started asking workers. We started doing worker surveys, and we found with the help of the foundation and Harvard that was helping to administer the surveys, um, we found that workers were interested in health, they were interested in more education, they were interested in equality, they were interested in being part of the financial system. And so we worked with our vendors, our suppliers, and with local organizations to bring these kinds of programs to the workers. We've been doing that now for about five or six years. We're reaching literally nearly 200,000 workers who are making our products and improving their well-being. How do you measure it? Is it working? We measure it through, with Harvard, going back. They're doing a longitudinal study, so they're tracking people. We're beginning to get the results now. Um, It's starting to reveal there is more happiness, there is more well-being on the part of the workers. But we're also realizing there's other things that are really important to that such as you mentioned, making sure that the basic rights are still being protected, Mm -hmm. so that's still very important, and making sure that our, what we call our purchasing practices or our business practices with a factory are also making sure that workers have steady work, steady jobs. You're an expert in this. I mean, you teach. I teach a course at Berkeley, an undergraduate course on corporate sustainability. So what can, I'm often confused as to how far we've come, where we're at with this. Obviously, it's very complicated. You can't generalize different countries, different companies. But how far have we come? What are the biggest challenges that remain? And perhaps you might shed some light on living wages for us. So we've come a long way. I think what we've seen with the worker well-being program and asking workers, you know, what do they need? What do they want? And so what's coming out of that is the things that are important to them are their health and the health of their families. Um, It's education. It is equality, so men and women being treated equally in the workplace. And it's access to the financial systems, the savings kinds of programs that will be able to help them. And so these are some of the programs that we've now launched with our vendors, with local groups. And we've seen some really interesting results. 
So we've seen not only health outcomes begin to be improved, workers in one of the factories in, in Mexico have now, through these savings programs, been able to save enough literally to buy a house. So this is the kind of, um, I think, improvement in workers' situation in their well-being that, that we're hoping for. So I think the issue goes far beyond simply the wage into the entire well-being of the, of the individual. We're actually looking at this with our own employees at Levi Strauss and Company, and the conversation is about well-being, mental, physical health, and how you're feeling about your work. Okay, let's talk a bit about materials. I'm leaping to a new subject, but I'm interested sure. to know about what else you're doing. So it's interesting. We have been supporting sustainable cotton for many years. The better cotton is now, this year, going to be 75% of all the cotton we use. But we're looking for even more sustainable fibers. And this year, we've introduced a new product as part of our well thread line that is 31% hemp. Now, hemp has not been used so much in the past because hemp is rough. It feels like burlap, and that is not the hand feel that we want in our product. But we've been working with a supplier that's created this new process called cottonized hemp, where the hemp is literally I've never heard of it. it's softer yeah. than cotton. And so when this 31% blend jacket is very soft, so it has a great hand feel. Our merchants love it. And hemp has about half of the environmental footprint of So it uses, it, it grows less without water, the use of pesticides. No pesticides, right, and less water. So it's a more sustainable fiber that we're starting to look at now and trying to determine how do we scale this. Yeah, but also determine how do you make it sexy because people are frightened of hemp. <laughs> right, but when they, when they experience it, when they feel the product, they'll realize, wow, this is not the hemp I used to know before. That's great. I know you're working with Evernew. I know Stacey Flynn. Mm -hmm. Tell us what Evernew is. Well, Evernew is a company that is looking at how do you take the cotton fiber and recycle it into new denim yarn and new denim fabric. Um, so they're trying to, trying to figure out a way to do that because when you try to recycle denim, when you try to recycle the cotton, um, what happens is the cotton fiber gets broken down and it shrinks, which means it's less strong. And to pass our quality tests, you need to have longer, longer cotton threads so that the fabric is strong. So the maximum blend of recycled cotton we're able to do and pass our quality requirements is probably 15 to 20%. Okay. So Evernew was trying to figure out how do you get a higher percentage of the recycled denim into a new product. It's quite interesting though, because they are a startup essentially, and then yes. you've partnered with them. Yes. Is that something that you are looking to do with others? Do you get involved uh, with Fashion for Good? Absolutely. So there are a number of startups out there and we have a number of these sustainability challenges that we're looking at. One is how do we get a higher percentage of recycled cotton into our products? Another is Right now, there's more blended. So we blend cotton with a little bit of lycra to get the stretch in the garment that people are looking for in terms of the performance. But how do you separate out those fibers to recycle them? So that's another uh, sustainability challenge that we're looking at. And we asked our partners to help us figure these out, the fabric mills and, and others. 
We um, at the company are supporting something we call the Levi Strauss and Company Collaboratory, which is literally bringing in some of these social entrepreneurs, these entrepreneurs every year on a different topic. Um, so we started this collaboratory with 15 uh, entrepreneurs looking at water issues. Um, last year it was climate issues. And so we bring them into the company, we talk to them, learn about their ideas, they're assigned a mentor to help them develop their ideas. We end up supporting some of them in the long run to just see how they're developing. That's pretty cool. Yes. You mentioned so, climate. Let's ask about that. That was going to be my finishing point. Sure. We're at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. The climate context has been much discussed, as yes. it well should be. Yes. Um, Levi's has a target of reducing its carbon footprint by 40% by 2025. In the supply chain. Right. Yes, 90% with our owned and operated facilities. Right. Yes. It's worth noting that the Australian government's goal is nowhere near that. The Paris Agreement goal is between 26 and 28% by 2030. And according to the Australian government, achieving that target may prove challenging. <laughs> they don't want to. We are run by coal in Australia. But Michael, how do you arrive at the targets? How do you choose the goals? What does it look like? Mm. It seems extremely complex. Obviously, you can look at the Paris Agreement as a guide, but why do you look at 40%? What does it mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... How do you do it? Big question. Yes. So a number of years ago, we had a climate target, a carbon reduction target of 25% by 2020. That only applied to our owned and operated facilities uh, because that was leadership back then when we set this target. We were able to meet that target three years ahead of schedule. So in 2017, we achieved that target of 25% reduction in our owned and operated facilities. And just briefly, how? How? Yeah. Energy efficiency, basically, in our big distribution centers primarily, as well as in our office buildings. But when we achieved that, we said, okay, what's next? Let's set a new target. And we did our research and we realized, well, the target or the climate science had advanced. And now people were talking about this thing called a, a science-based target for setting your carbon emissions goals. And a science-based target means that essentially, you talked about the Paris Agreement. In Paris, the world's governments agreed on what they needed to reduce in order to keep the global temperature from rising more than two degrees Celsius. The climate science has evolved to the point where you can now calculate for any entity, including a company, what is their carbon footprint and how much do they need to reduce to do their share to keep the global temperature from rising 2%. It's really interesting. So that it's fascinating, right? Yeah. The science has gotten very sophisticated. So we said, okay, that's the new best practice. We should do that. And we also said it has to apply to more than our own and operated emissions because our owned and operated emissions only represent about 1% of our total emissions as a company that we're responsible for. The supply chain, what they call scope three emissions, amounts to 63%. The balance is consumer use. Right. Okay. So we set our owned and operated target at 90% because we definitely need to do our part. But that's really, if we achieve that, it's only 1% of our total. So what this other 63% of the supply chain, how do we deal with that? Not many companies have taken that on because we don't control it, right? It's our suppliers. And so that's why setting that 40% target was very important to not only set a high goal for us, but to send a signal to the rest of the industry, it's possible. We should strive for this amount. 
based on what the scientists told us, that was the amount that we needed to do to prevent global temperature from going up more than 2%, or at least to do our part mm. to prevent global temperature from going up more than 2%. It does give me hope to hear about bold goals that are being made by some of the big players. I worry about climate all the time and worry about government inertia and inaction. But maybe it's up to, maybe that's my question. In your opinion, not speaking as Levi's, is it up to corporates to try and lead this? Well, everyone has to do their part, right? And so governments send a strong signal to the world that yes, they're committed to do this. Companies have to do their part. And in certain countries like the US where the government has said they're not going to do it, it's really, um, I think, stimulated the private sector to stand up and declare, this is important to us, we're going to do it. So we're part of a group called We Are Still In, which is a group of companies and state governments got a bad and right universities that are saying, even if the government isn't going to do it, we're going to do our part to keep emissions down and to keep the temperature from rising. We're back to what your mentor said, Michael, when he said, actually, if yes. you work for a big company, maybe you can make more impact than if you work in the NGO sector. Well, I think the world has evolved to that point. I think the private sector has the resources, has the will to act, in some cases can see beyond the politics of an issue to what is really important, um, not only to, to the world and to people, uh, but to business. We're just out of time. We've got two more rapid questions. One, what keeps you up at night? Uh, what keeps me up at night is that we're not doing enough, quickly enough, to meet all of the challenges that are out there, particularly as we know around climate change. Okay, and two, what do you hope for the fashion future? One of my hopes is that some of these high bars that we've set can serve as inspiration for others. Uh, we're proud of the fact that we've set this aggressive climate target. We're working with the International Finance Corporation to actually get it done. And through our pilots, we've seen that it's possible to reduce emissions and save money. So it makes business sense to do that. So I'm hopeful that not only will others follow our lead, they have to, because let's remember, a science-based target is the minimum that any entity, any company needs to sign up for around climate change. The minimum. We actually need to do better than that, right? So we have to keep pushing the bar higher and higher. So our hope is, my hope is, that we keep pushing the bar higher and get the entire industry on board to make this change. That's my hope too. Also, I love your badge, which says, give Earth a chance. Give Earth a chance. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Claire. That was terrific. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. Tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. 
She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you